Turn in your Bible to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Well, I think in some ways this morning will be a welcome change from what we have been seeing for the last few chapters. And I say that not to complain about the Bible, but simply because we've been seeing an extended explanation of the judgment that was going to fall on Israel for their rejection of Jesus. But today, we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is a scene of celebration and joy. Follow along as I read Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right. Well, notice first of all that verse 6 begins with the word then. That tells us that what is happening here in this scene happens at the same time or right on the heels of what we just finished seeing. Well, what did we just see? We saw the destruction of the whore, Babylon. And remember that Babylon represents Jerusalem. So the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the whole Jewish system, temple, all, of that, that, all that happens when? It happens in A.D. 70. This is God's judgment on Old Covenant Israel, the earthly Jerusalem. Well, why did that judgment fall? Because they rejected Jesus as Messiah and King. So this whole book of Revelation is Jesus' legal case against Israel. And in the last section, the judgment is finally complete. The temple is destroyed. The Jewish religious system surrounding the temple, it all comes to a crashing end in A.D. 70. And now, at this time, we have the marriage supper of the Lamb which happens then. When? When the judgment falls on Israel, A.D. 70. And this will become clearer as we dig into what the marriage supper is indicating to us. The marriage supper is an image for the new covenant, the celebration of the new covenant. Okay, The marriage supper is an image for the celebration of the new covenant. Under the old covenant, God was the husband of Israel. But now Israel is being divorced because she's been unfaithful and she's rejected Jesus. Under the new covenant, the church is the bride of Christ. So Jesus is gathering his bride from all nations. Remember that the old covenant, while it was real, was never ultimate. It was always a shadow, a picture, a type. 
It pointed to a greater reality. The old covenant was a picture of the new covenant. And when the new covenant arrives, the old passes away. Now, I want you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 61. Okay, we'll come back to Revelation 19, but turn in your Bible to Isaiah 61. As always, in the book of Revelation, we want to let Scripture be our guide for interpretation. So we want to see what the rest of Scripture has to say about this imagery of the bride and the supper. And we'll start with the Old Testament. And and I'm just going to go to Isaiah 61, though there are a number of other places we could go. We're just going to look at Isaiah 61 this morning. So let's read this short chapter, and I will just comment on it as we go. Okay, Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, pause there for just a minute. If you've spent time reading the Gospels, reading about the ministry of Jesus, you probably realize that what I just read is applied to Jesus. In Luke 4, Jesus goes into a synagogue and he's asked to do the reading. So he reads this passage from Isaiah and then he tells everyone, this has now been fulfilled. In other words, Jesus says this passage is talking about him and his ministry announcing that the kingdom of God has arrived. Now look at the next phrase in Isaiah 61. And the day of vengeance of our God. Now in Luke 4, when Jesus reads it, he doesn't include that part. The day of vengeance. Because when he came, he came revealing himself to be the Messiah and everyone had an opportunity to respond to the Messiah, to submit to him as king. But by the end of his ministry, we see that the Jews, especially those who were the religious leaders, official Israel, rejected Jesus to the point that they murdered him. And in that last week of Jesus's ministry, before his crucifixion, Jesus warned about the judgment that was going to fall on them because they were rejecting him. So in Luke chapter 21, Jesus describes the judgment that is about to fall on Jerusalem. It's the parallel passage to Matthew 24 that we looked at back last fall. But one of the things Jesus said in Luke 21 is this. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. These are days of vengeance, just like Isaiah says in the passage you're looking at in Isaiah 61 verse 2. Do you understand what this is saying? When Jesus came, he fulfilled Isaiah 61. He brought all of the blessings of the age of Messiah, But at the same time, these would be days of vengeance against all of those who rejected him. That's what Jesus announces. And the days of vengeance 
are what Jesus brings on Jerusalem in AD 70. That's what Luke 21 is talking about. That's what Matthew 24 is talking about. Mark 13. That's the days of vengeance. Okay, now back to Isaiah 61. The end of verse 2. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So the language here in Isaiah is of things being restored, things flourishing, things being the way they should be. Verse 5, strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Let me just stop there. It says that they're going to be called priests. When are all of God's people called priests? In the new covenant. We are all called priests. Okay, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. What's the everlasting covenant that Isaiah is speaking of? That he says God will establish in that day. It's the new covenant. Verse 9. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. Now, note this section carefully. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of of righteousness. Do you remember what we read in Revelation 19? John says that those who are invited, who are part of the supper, and we will see that those who are invited actually are the bride, okay? Those people are dressed in fine linen, John says in Revelation 19, the marriage supper, okay? They're dressed in fine linen. And he says, what is the fine linen? The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints, well, here Isaiah refers to them as garments of salvation, the robe of righteousness. Keep going here in verse 10. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, with her jewels. So now we learn that these ones who are dressed in the garments of righteousness are the bride and groom of a wedding. And from the context we've seen, we know that this wedding is connected to the new covenant because that's what Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So this chapter, Isaiah 61, is clear, or excuse me, 62, 61, brain freeze, is clearly describing the new covenant. And the ones who participate in it are the participants of a wedding. 
They've got their wedding clothes on. And at the same time, it's also days of vengeance. So there's great blessing and great judgment happening at the same time. Blessing for some, judgment for others. And we know from the New Testament that the blessing is for those who submit to Jesus and the judgment is for those who reject him. Now, come back with me to Revelation 19. When we come back to Revelation 19, we've just seen earlier in Revelation the final judgment of Jerusalem and the temple. And now we come to a marriage feast. What are we seeing? We're seeing the fulfillment of what Isaiah said about the new covenant. Days of vengeance and a marriage supper. The marriage supper is an image for the celebration of the new covenant. Okay, so that's, hopefully that's some help from the Old Testament. What about when we come to the New Testament? Do we find the marriage imagery there too? Well, let me show you what we're taught by two men in the New Testament. First, Paul, then Jesus. Paul, I'm going to give you two things Paul says that are helpful here. First, in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 4, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, you put up with it readily enough. See, Paul sees his role as an apostle as preparing the bride to be ready. He wants the church to be pure. He doesn't want them to go astray from Christ. So being pure means being faithful to Christ. He wants them to be dressed in the pure linen clothes that John talks about. If they tolerate those who don't teach the truth about Christ, then they aren't remaining pure. So Paul thinks of the church as a bride being made ready. And here's the second thing that Paul says. Now he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he's writing about relationships between husbands and wives. And Paul tells the husbands that they should love their wives like Christ because Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, okay, make her pure, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So again, the church is described as the Christ's bride and his purpose is to sanctify her, to make her pure and holy. So we've seen the old, this, this marriage imagery in the Old Testament and in Paul. Now, how about Jesus? I want you to turn there with me. Turn to Matthew 22. This is the only other place I'm going to have you turn. Okay, Matthew 22. This is a story that Jesus tells. He tells a story about a king who is throwing a wedding feast for his son. And he sent... Let me just pause there. The king throwing the wedding feast for the son should help you to kind of realize how this can connect to what we're seeing in Revelation 19, okay, with the, the wedding feast, all right, the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the lamb. So follow along as I read in Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. 
And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Okay, so let's think about who the characters in the story represent. Who's the king? God the Father. Okay, you can answer me. Who's the king's son? Jesus. Who are those who are invited to the wedding feast but would not come? It's Israel. It's the Jews who have been invited but don't have faith in Jesus. Okay, now remember, Jesus is telling this story during the week leading up to his crucifixion. This is just before all the woes in Matthew 23 to the religious leaders and just before the big warning in Matthew 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem that is coming, the destruction of the temple. So those who have been invited but won't come are the Jews. Jesus has come to them. He's announced the kingdom. He's announced the wedding. He's invited them, but they refuse him. So who are the servants whom the father sent to call the invited guests. Yeah, prophets, right? All the Old Testament prophets who've been speaking to Israel all along the way, are, these are the ones who are the servants who are turned away. Okay, now pick it up in verse four. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Okay, so these people who were invited not only reject the invitation, but they mistreat and even kill the servants who are sent to them. What is it that Jesus says about Jerusalem in the very next chapter? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It's clear what Jesus is saying here. So what is God's response then to Israel's rejection of Jesus? Look at verse 7. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So what's that talking about? It's obvious. This is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Jerusalem burns in God's judgment on the Jews for rejecting Jesus. So then what happens to the wedding feast? Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And this, of course, is the gospel, the good news, the invitation to the wedding, going out to the nations. No longer will the covenant be focused on one earthly nation, but it's opened wide to all nations. Look at verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. 
And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this part of Jesus' story is emphasizing the importance of having right clothes. Not just appearing to belong, not just claiming to belong, but actually having what's necessary to join in the feast. And we'll talk about it more in a few minutes. But what does Revelation 19 tell us about these clothes? The fine linen garments are the righteous acts of the saints. What righteous acts? Hold that thought for a minute. We'll get there. But hopefully by now, you've seen that the marriage and the wedding feast is a consistent image throughout scripture for Christ and the church. So it helps us then when we come to Revelation 19. Okay, so we're back to Revelation 19 for good now. When we set this within the big picture of the book of Revelation, I think the meaning becomes clearer. Remember, Revelation is Jesus' legal complaint against Israel for their rejection and murder of him. And the case is laid out kind of all through the book of Revelation along with all the judgments that fall on Israel in A.D. 70 because of it. So what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is the, it's the theological or moral reason that the old covenant is done away with. One of the covenant partners has been unfaithful. Israel has been unfaithful, adulterous. So the covenant is being dissolved. Israel has been adulterous and unfaithful, and so the just and righteous thing for God to do is to divorce her. But this shadow, the old covenant, was inferior. The new covenant is greater. Why is the new covenant greater? Well, one reason that the new covenant is greater is that neither party in the new covenant will ever be unfaithful. Let me say that again. Neither party in the new covenant will ever be unfaithful. How can I say that? I mean, every one of us has been unfaithful to God this past week, right? Every one of us knows that from the adults right on down to the kids. Kids, if I were to ask you, did you do anything wrong? Did you do anything sinful this week? If you were answering honestly, we would all say yes. Every one of us. Here's how it's possible that neither party in the new covenant will ever be unfaithful. In the new covenant, with whom does God make the covenant? Who's the other partner? The other partner is the representative king of the new covenant people. Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. He represents the new humanity of the new covenant. Jesus is faithful for us. Jesus is faithful on our behalf. On our own, of course we would be covenant breakers. But we're not on our own. We're in Christ. And Christ will never be unfaithful. 
See, this is why it was necessary for God to become a man. For Jesus to enter human history as a baby, to grow up as a man, and to become our representative king. Because as a man, as the perfect man, he stands in our place as our covenant head. So the new covenant will never fail. In the new covenant, there will never be a covenant divorce. Both parties will be perfectly faithful because the parties are God the Father and Christ the divine and human Son. Now, how is it that we become part of the covenant? We get in by marriage. We're in-laws in that sense. We marry into the family. We become the bride of Christ. So look at who's invited to the feast. Let me just first summarize what this marriage imagery tells us, okay? This was an arranged marriage. The bride was chosen from all of eternity. Then the wedding announcement went out all through the Old Testament and the Gospels, the wedding was announced and the people were invited. And then the betrothal or engagement took place. Jesus became a man so that he was qualified to be our bridegroom. Then the bridal price, the dowry, was paid at the cross. And then the wedding feast. Now, when we look in Revelation 19 more closely at who comes to the wedding feast, we see that the people who come to the feast actually are the ones who become the bride. We see that the bride has made herself ready and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. Then the angel says that those who are invited to the marriage supper are blessed. So are we talking about the bride or are we talking about those invited to attend? And the answer is yes. Okay, so you're invited to attend and every person who attends, who comes in, becomes part of the church, the bride of Christ. These are the ones whose deeds are righteous. Well, what deeds are specifically in mind here? It's what the angel says in verse 10, holding to the testimony of Jesus. You see, those who are faithful who have faith in Christ, are the ones who are invited. In fact, their faith is the righteous deeds, the pure linen, that are the proper clothes for the wedding. That's why Paul can say that the righteous shall live by faith. And the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And our faith is counted to us as righteousness, just like it was for Abraham. And that the promise given to Abraham and his offspring that he would inherit the world came through the righteousness of faith. And that the Gentiles have now attained a righteousness that is by faith. See, righteousness in God's eyes comes by faith. The righteous deeds of the saints, the pure linen clothes of Revelation 19, that's faith. Holding to the testimony of Jesus, that's what qualifies you for the wedding. That's what makes you part of the bride. Faith. And the main point that I want us to hear from the scripture passage this morning is this. 
Those who have faith in Jesus are invited to the marriage supper and are the bride of Christ. This marriage supper begins with the dawning of the new covenant in Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's been fully established once the old covenant is gone. And that happens in A.D. 70. So you have this time of transition from A.D. 30, Jesus' death and resurrection, to A.D. 70, the destruction of Jerusalem. The old covenant is passing away. The new covenant is being established. And by the time, A.D. 70, that the old covenant is done away with, the new covenant is now fully and completely established. The feast is open. The marriage supper has begun. The invitation is open and people are coming in and becoming part of the bride. And throughout this age, the bride is making herself ready by continuing in faithfulness to the testimony of Jesus Christ. So who belongs at the feast? Those who have fine linen clothes. Those who stand for the testimony of Christ. Those who are faithful. Those who are righteous, dressed not in their own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, which is theirs by faith. So how about you? Are you dressed for the wedding? Are you dressed in the righteousness of Christ? If not, this should be your highest priority. It should be your utmost focus. When the day of judgment comes, no one will be allowed in who does not have these clothes. Remember that story that Jesus told. If you have dressed yourself in other clothes, you'll be refused. If you have trusted in your own righteousness, your own goodness. If you think that, well, compared to most people, I, I'm, I'm doing all right. If you think that God will be merciful simply because he's a God of love, then you are sadly mistaken. On the day of judgment, only those dressed in the fine linen of righteousness will be admitted, only those dressed in the righteousness of Christ, only those who are trusting in him, those who come to him by faith will be allowed to enter. Disney World has a dress code and theoretically they enforce it at their theme park and their typical practice was that if someone was violating the dress code badly enough, the park would give them a voucher for a free shirt in a Disney shop and ask them to go change into it. And a trend caught on earlier this year of people realizing that if they showed up in violation of the dress code, they could get a free shirt out of it. Until Disney realized the trend and changed their policy to do away with the free shirt. Well, the clothes that are required for this wedding feast will not be given out on Judgment Day. You must come to the feast already having them, already dressed in the righteousness of Christ. There is no souvenir shop and there is no purgatory where you can gain the righteousness you need. But it must also be pointed out that the clothes you need on that day are offered to you freely now. There is no cost. They are a free gift of God. So don't wait. Trust Christ now. 
What should you be doing if you already are dressed in the righteousness of Christ? If you already have come to Christ by faith? Well, first, remember how you came to have these clothes? What did you spend to get them? What was the cost to you to obtain these pure linen garments? You didn't buy them. You didn't do anything to earn them. You didn't deserve them. No, they were a gift of God's grace. So how do you respond to a gift? With gratitude, with thankfulness. What does that look like? What does gratitude for the gift of God's righteousness look like? It looks like holiness. It looks like obeying his word. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Not to earn your righteousness, but because your righteous standing has already been given to you as a gift. What else does gratitude look like? It looks like loyalty. It looks like faithfulness. The pure linen robes are the righteous deeds of the saints, which is faithfulness to the testimony of Christ. So are you faithful to the testimony of Christ? Do you proudly follow him or do you hide it? Do you proclaim him or are you silent? May God grant that we be grateful and faithful people in response to the gift of his righteousness, that we be a holy and pure bride prepared for her husband. God has given us a tangible way to celebrate this marriage supper, this wedding feast. When we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're coming as the bride invited to the feast. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we're remembering the dowry that was paid by our bridegroom to gain us his bride. We're remembering how it is that we have come to have the pure linen garments, the righteous standing before God. It's ours because of Christ. Now, in a moment, we're going to partake of this meal together, but to prepare our hearts this morning, I want you to listen for two or three minutes as I read to you something from Jonathan Edwards, who's an 18th century New England pastor. And it's appropriate that as we come to the Lord's Supper that we examine our hearts. And I want you to use his words this morning to let the Spirit of God examine your hearts to say, am I coming to the table rightly? Am I coming in the spirit of gratitude and faithfulness and loyalty to this one who has paid the dowry, who has become our bridegroom? Here's what Edwards says. Christians, in the participation and communion of gospel benefits, have joy unspeakable and full of glory, a sweeter delight than any this world affords. We are invited to come that our souls may delight themselves in fatness. When the prodigal son returned, they killed the fatted calf and made a feast and sang and danced and made merry, which represents the joy there is in a sinner and concerning him when he comes to Christ. This spiritual feast is compared to a wedding feast. So was the feast spoken of in the parable, as it is in Matthew 22, at the beginning, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, which made a marriage for his son and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And so it is, Revelation 19:9, Blessed are they which shall be called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Hence we learn the wisdom of Christ in the appointment of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a representation of this spiritual gospel feast. It is very suitable to the gospel state of the church, the state wherein God's grace in providing for souls is so abundantly manifested and this spiritual provision so plentifully bestowed that there should be a feast appointed and observed in the church showing forth that spiritual feast which God has provided in Jesus Christ for our souls with such great expense and to signify and seal the covenant with agreement and friendship between God and his people. In this ordinance is represented the great cost which God has been at to provide this feast for us in the representation of the breaking of the body and shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ in order that we have all spiritual blessings by the body and blood of Christ. And Christ did, as it were, submit himself to death, that he might give his body and blood to be our meat and drink, that we might have such food as would nourish and satisfy our souls. In this sacrament, we have this represented to us. Father, as we come together to share this meal, we do so as grateful people who have been given a great gift. We thank you for the shed blood of Jesus, which atones for our sins, and we thank you for his righteousness credited to us, a righteousness not our own, not earned or deserved, but freely given. We ask that you cause us to be faithful to the testimony of Jesus. Cause us to be the pure and holy bride prepared for her husband. In the name of Jesus, amen.